0: Welcome to Access Utah, this is Addison Pace. Today on the program we hear about the war in Afghanistan from the perspective of one of the nation's leading industrialists. There, until the 1980s, author Nasser Shansab joins us to talk about his experience growing up in Afghanistan, within one of the nation's most prominent families, and how his forced exile influenced his unique role in the U.S. government. At 9.30, Science Questions explores how and why the first roads in America were originally built and what led the major nationwide effort to construct the American transportation system built largely off the backs of 18 to 25-year-old men. This will be coming up after the news.
1: Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Violence in southern Afghanistan has escalated in recent weeks since the Taliban announced their new spring offensive. To
2: launch its spring offensive in Afghanistan starting today. The group says it will step up attacks on foreign military bases and diplomatic posts, and it quickly kept that promise. Three Afghan police officers. Afghanistan were killed today has by been war-torn since
1: bomb. the 1970s, with a full-on assault from the superpowers in the 1980s. Today on the program, we hear from Nasser Shansab, a former industry leader in Afghanistan and author of the book, The Silent Trees, a work of fiction set in Afghanistan, the U.S. and Pakistan. It profiles the life of Afghanistan before all of the wars.
3: Mostly it deals uh, with Afghanistan in in the the late
1: 1970s. I talked to Nasser Shansab on the phone from his home in Virginia. He offered a glimpse into the current situation in Afghanistan, with a historical overview of what has happened up to this point in time, from his perspective and experience as an industrialist and writer. Jean Sab was forced to flee Afghanistan in the late 1970s for making private statements critical of former King Zahir. He fled with his family to Germany and in 1979 moved to the United States, where he was granted political asylum in 1980. In the U.S., he said he advised American officials on the Afghan resistance to the Soviet occupation. In fact, he worked closely with Senator Orrin Hatch.
3: Senator Orrin Hatch was somebody who was very involved in, uh, in the Afghan uh, resistance against Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And I know him from that time, from the 1980s, uh, and we did uh, a little bit of work together in helping the resistance at that time. He was there and, and, and tried to steer the United States, the policy in Washington, to help the resistance. So In that sense, his work was very crucial, yes.
1: Back in his homeland as a young boy, Sean Saab grew up in a country much different.
3: My early childhood was was actually uh, uh, fairly good and fairly easygoing because uh, my father was a fairly wealthy man, and um, uh, we had cars, we had big homes, uh, and uh, everything was fine. And at that time, of course, Afghanistan was a fairly uh, peaceful place. Uh, The city, Kabul, where I lived, was actually a smaller city of about uh, half a million people. It was quite clean and uh, quite pleasant.
1: His family was wealthy and employed the majority of the industrial workers in the power and textile industries.
3: It probably uh, employed about uh, 60% of all industrial uh, workers in Afghanistan, which was not necessarily a very large number because there were not a lot of industries in Afghanistan. But I think that that all the companies together uh, probably employed about 20,000 people.
1: On one of his many trips back to Afghanistan after he moved to the U.S., he met many of the resistance leaders, including Osama bin Laden. And on one visit, shared breakfast with him.
3: I met bin Laden. I mean, at that time, he was not the famous uh, or infamous character that he ultimately developed to be people didn't know him as much he was there as a young uh, saudi he had brought along uh, a little bit of money and and a few of his uh, of his uh, buddies they claimed to be helping the afghan resistance uh, and i met him at at a breakfast meeting at the intercontinental hotel um, and then I, I must admit, no, not knowing what he would ultimately become, I didn't like him very much right from the beginning. And the reason was uh, was a personal reason. He mishandled the people who served us, the, the, the service in that restaurant. He also handed over money. Afghans would come to him, they sit down at the table, and he would, he would just give them cash. Uh, and, and I felt that he was very arrogant, very self-centered, and didn't like him.
1: I asked him to explain why he thought the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. According to Shansab, it was ultimately for world ordinance and for power over the Middle East.
3: Afghanistan was never a a democracy. And there is a little bit of misunderstanding among uh, many people abroad uh, outside Afghanistan. Uh, Most people think that Afghanistan was was heaven and the communists came and made it to hell. Uh, There's no doubt that the communists came and made it to hell, but it wasn't really heaven. I think that there, 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 were, there were a lot of tensions within the society uh, because we were not a democracy. We were, uh, we were ruled by, uh, by a bunch of uh, people and families uh, who were, uh, basically worked for themselves. And that created a lot. When more younger people became educated, uh, and more people started to, to, to object to the system and to oppose the system. And that ultimately caused caused the weaknesses within society. During the Soviet times, the communists became very strong and they ultimately uh, abolished the established system and made the country to be a communist country. I don't believe they liked to go into Afghanistan because they knew that the world would dislike that move. But ultimately, they felt there they was something like called like uh, something like uh, the freshness idea that no established uh, socialist country could be toppled. And, and that meant that the Soviet Union was forced to, to invade Afghanistan ultimately because the resistance became very strong against the communist country uh, government, and they had to prop it up. But, of course, once they were in Afghanistan, they always wanted to have access to, to warm waters. And Afghanistan was a good step closer to what they wanted to have. And they also could project power in the Middle East because they are very close to the Middle East from there.
1: During the Soviet occupation, the United States supported the resistance. I asked him to explain how the occupation has affected the war on terror today, which he said is the longest war in the history of the U.S.
3: During the Soviet occupation, of course, uh, Afghanistan uh, was was a centre of uh, rebellion and, and a centre of opposition to Soviet expansion. And in, in, in that area, uh, the United States uh, was um, pro-Afghanistan at that time and supported the resistance against Soviet occupation. And ultimately, the resistance uh, did succeed. But they once once they succeeded, and went. And took over the country. They messed it up in a sense that they became warlords and fought each other and actually destroyed the country even more. And then the Taliban came about. Of course, then Qaeda uh, K- K- entered Afghanistan because, the, the, because it was a void, a, a place where, where there was no government. And 9-11 happened. And apparently the, 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 the planning, Afghanistan had nothing to do with 9-11, but the planning uh, of it and the people who, who did it were in, stationed in Afghanistan. And that led, of course, to the invasion of Afghanistan by the United States. And uh, it is now, uh, uh, I assume, the longest war in the history of the United States.
1: I understand you go back often more than 40 times so far. How does it change every time you go there?
3: Initially, uh, the feelings, uh, most people had very optimistic uh, feelings and uh, looked forward to a better life. Uh, And and that has uh, more and more deteriorated over time. And today, there's uh, uh, basically uh, quite a bit of hopelessness and actually fear of what might happen to Afghanistan after 2014.
1: What is your hope for the future of Afghanistan? and the Afghan people.
3: I look at it uh, from, a, from a little bit of a darker, uh, darker view. Um, in my judgment, the opportunity to rebuild Afghanistan has been squandered, and, and I believe America is losing the war.
1: Saab adds there are some good things like education for women and better access to telephones that have come out of this war. But he fears the end of the U.S. occupation will cause more civil wars to erupt.
3: There are some good things that, that happened. Of course, there are more students studying at schools today. Uh, girls are going to school. Millions of girls are going to school that, that they couldn't do during the Taliban times. Uh, there are phones. People have telephones. A lot of, at least 60 percent of Afghans have telephone access to telephones. Uh, uh, the, the media is uh, quite vibrant. Uh, uh, there are about, I think, 12 uh, TV stations in many, many newspapers uh, and, and radio stations. Uh, So many good things have happened, but the problem is, and the fear is, whether these good things that have actually happened would continue to happen should another civil war evolve in Afghanistan, which is a, a very good likelihood, unfortunately.
1: Next, he talks about the Sunni movement. Islam, he said, is going through a fundamentalist phase.
3: A lot of the people in that general region have become more uh, oriented towards religion and have accepted a more, uh, a more fundamentalist view of, of Islam. Uh, so Afghanistan is now uh, quite traditional and quite fundamentalist. Uh, most people are. And that's, of course, one of the problems that we have. The lack of hope and the lack of, uh, of seeing a better future tends to, to force people to go back towards a very fundamentalist view of, of God and, and religion.
1: Could you discuss the connection with Mahdi and what that signifies?
3: It is a view uh, that is uh, quite intolerant. It's a view that only they know the truth and only they know what God is and only they are the right people to, uh, to believe in God and the rest of the world doesn't count. And that, of course, is a view that in today's world, where we all live together and where the world has become so small, it's a very dangerous view. But what has happened in Afghanistan and also partly in Pakistan is the influence of the Wahhabi sector that's very strong in Saudi Arabia. The Saudi Arabian monarchy and the Wahhabi sector work together and they have a very oppressive look oppressive system of governmental control on people. And during the resistance against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s, uh, Saudi Arabia paid a lot of money. They initiated uh, quite a number of madrasas, uh, which are religious schools, and basically trained many, many young people, especially among the Afghan refugees. In the Wahhabi system. And the Wahhabi system is—it um, is part of Islam, but a very uh, fundamentalist uh, part of Islam. They don't believe, for example, in the in human rights—at uh, at least the way we would like uh, to believe in it. Uh, they don't uh, believe in the equality of the sexes. They pursue a very strict segregation of the sexes. Actually, and that is what is happening in, in parts of Pakistan and Afghanistan.
1: Do you have plans to go back to Afghanistan now, despite the situation?
3: I was hoping that there would be a possibility to go back to Afghanistan, but I don't believe in that anymore. I, I don't believe that uh, Afghanistan is a place where one can live the way I would like to live, uh, which is a more or less secular, uh, secular lifestyle, uh, and, uh, and letting people think the way they would like to to think. Uh, I don't think that's possible. I'm going to stay. I'm, I would like to go and travel back and forth. Uh, we have quite a bit of property there still, and I know many people over there. And I'm interested in, if I can, of course, to be a part of the reconstruction of that country, uh, which is not doing well, by the way. But I'm an American, and I will probably stay here and die here and enjoy my, my, my children here.
1: If the U.S. loses the war in Afghanistan, Shahn expects chaos to ensue.
3: We'll descend into chaos. I, th- I think that uh, there will be a civil war, uh, everybody against everybody, and it will be very bloody and, and, and terribly destructive.
1: He hopes the U.S. stays there, but in order for the occupation to be successful, he said current policies must change.
3: I hope that people will not forget Afghanistan. I think it would be wrong if we, if we left Afghanistan completely at this time, because the work is not done. Uh, we did that in the early 1990s, and, and you know what happened to Afghanistan and to the world. And uh, I think it would be a mistake if we left Afghanistan now uh, and uh, didn't complete the job. Of course, to be able to complete the job, uh, we need to change our policies quite drastically towards Afghanistan.
1: Shansab is working on another book about what happened after 9-11.
3: And what happened in the last 10, 12 years in Afghanistan. What the U.S. did, what the local government did, uh, what the international community did, I'm I'm trying to put that together.
1: That was Nasser Shansab, author of The Silent Trees. Thanks for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Stay tuned for science questions up next.
2: father believed any man that needed a vacation should get a different job. For him, those 110 acres was the whole world. He needed nothing else.
4: Hi, this is Dave Isay, founder of the Public Radio Oral History Project, StoryCorps. Remember an important person in your life when our mobile recording booth comes to town.
0: StoryCorps will be in St. George, Utah throughout the month of May. To reserve your spot, visit upr.org. Spots are still available, and you can reserve those at upr.org or calling 1-800-850-4406, the StoryCorps. Mobile booth is parked in Town Square in St. George. This is a free oral history recording project. Thank you again. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and by Apogee Instruments of Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com.
5: Waste not. Water your plants deeply but less frequently to encourage deep root growth and drought tolerance. Another conservation tip, use a commercial
1: car wash that recycles water.
6: Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash public
0: Also today, we're offering two tickets to the Matinee Enchante, an enchanting afternoon of mag- magic and music at the Thatcher Young Mansion, located at 35 West and 100 South in Logan. This is at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 11th at, on this year. Uh, guests will include Richard Hatch, Rosemary Hatch, and Jonathan Hatch. To get these tickets, call in at 1-800-826-1495. And the first caller will receive these, and you can pick these up at our Logan, at our Logan studio. Thank you so much.
7: Welcome to Science Questions. I'm Susie Montgomery. And I am Sherry Quinn. It is not unusual to see groups of seniors in St. George, Utah. But how about seeing a group of the first conservationists of the United States of America averaging 90 years old and passing the conservation torch to the younger generations? These men are the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, who built most of our nation's trails, dams, and bridges during the Depression era. Of the roughly 20,000 men who comprised the Corps from 1933 to 1938, about 1,000 are still living, and a dozen made their way across the nation to attend a CCC Legacy gathering where they toured their old camps.
8: I spent 18 months in one camp, and I got out, and there was still no work around. So I went back in, went to a camp in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and they were just about ready to close, and they shipped us all up in the North Adams mess. But it was a great experience. And if the kids could do it today, good luck
9: to them.
1: We caught up with some of those kids in St. George.
9: Once in a while, we have people who come through and realize, you know what, I never want to work this hard again in my life. And then they go and they get a job in a bank. And I think that's a good thing, actually, because sometimes we want to help those people decide that this is not for them.
1: That was Dave Bastian, the program coordinator for a modern-day Conservation Corps, the Utah Conservation Corps, or UCC, based at the Utah State University campus in Logan. UCC is a branch of AmeriCorps, a federal government agency created under President Bill Clinton that focuses on education and the maintenance of public lands and these young men and women are workhorses of conservation.
4: My name is Adam Stotel. I'm the Roving Field Boss for the Utah Conservation Corps.
1: Stotl, who works with
7: Bastian, describes his work much the same as old-timer Charlie Walmeyer's, but with a different motivation.
4: You know, I feel that conservation was in its infancy with Roosevelt and the Civilian Conservation Corps, you know, they had an interesting way of looking at things, and they were starting to get into some of the soil conservation, erosion control, um, but a lot of it was trying to get recreation to happen on our on our natural lands, on our public lands, and so building of reservoirs, building of dams, improving the ability for us, you know, to have agriculture. Um, I feel like conservation then was trying to mold the environment to a way that humans could interact in it in an easier fashion. Uh, now we're just trying to mold our activities so that we can interact with the natural environment easier. So I think that's kind of the major, the major shift. I feel that the heart has always been the same, but the, the techniques have molded as science and as, as kind of the, the sustainable mentality has caught up with, with us.
1: It was a typical banquet room, but these men in their 80s and 90s made it lively, swapping stories about their time in the camps elicited by the Speaker of the Night, Robert Audrich, author and CCC historian, who shared similar experiences as a Grand Canyon Park Ranger.
10: A lot of our infrastructure, our water lines, our sewer lines, our industrial buildings were done by the CCC in the 30s. Here's the basics. Got to be between 17 and 25. You got to be from a poor family, you have to be a citizen, no prison record, have to be in good health, no communicable diseases, basic things like that, you take an oath that's less than a page long and you got guaranteed work for six months and the ability perhaps to learn some new skills to put you back to work.
1: Ninety-one-year-old Fred Garcia from Glendale, Arizona, joined the CCC, just a boy looking for a
10: job.
6: I had just gotten out of high school, what, six months I got out of high school in June of 37, no jobs nothing to do and it was a chance to do something also help out the family because twenty-five dollars a month was sent to, directly to your family so that was roughly equivalent of uh, a week's wages for my father so in other words getting an extra payday a month
10: many historians say that the great depression was one of the greatest crises to hit our country since the Civil War. Over 100,000 businesses had failed. Over 5,000 banks had failed. Unemployment was 25%. Now we have a new president. His name is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Conservation is a favorite thing for him. He had done conservation on his estate in New York. As governor of the state of New York, he had pushed through a bill to put young men to work in state parks and things like that. Within
7: two years, Roosevelt had orchestrated basically a conservation army of over 500,000 men working in thousands of locations across the U.S. Together, the men cleared 28,000 miles of trails, planted 3 billion trees, built 63,000 buildings, created 800 new state parks still in use today, and constructed 125,000 roads.
6: getting used to working with your hands, and especially, uh, you know, it was a toughening up process. I mean, I'm standing in a, in a ditch seven feet deep, and it's maybe four feet wide, and I've got a long-handled shovel, and I'm trying to throw dirt out the top, and uh, that, and splitting rocks, and so forth. But, uh, you, know, you, you develop a certain amount of muscle you usually ended up with one fellow that you sort of buddied around with. and You, you got along with everybody else. That was one of the things that taught you was uh, how to work and how to get along with people. Look at it this way. Everybody was in the same boat you were. So you weren't exceptional in, in any way. So it's just a question of getting on.
4: Fred had a you know, very interesting life in the sense that he went through the CCC he stayed kind of locally with the CCC, you know, Philadelphia to Virginia, um, but after that, he, once he went into the military, once he went into the Air Force, he spent 31 years abroad, 31 years living in Europe, living in Africa, working for uh, RCA.
7: Adam Stoddall of the Utah Conservation Corps and Fred Garcia spent the day together comparing notes.
4: Um, you know, I, I've been concentrating on conservation corps in the Intermountain West and just thinking about taking at concentration and broadening it out to to an area that has a similar climate, but may not have a similar conservation mind or may not have that set up with any kind of um, national preserves or you know, land beautification projects or anything like that in other countries and taking that abroad. And so I think that international scope is something that I learned from him today and the fact that you, know, you can really just go into anything. You know, he he was a mechanic and then got into the Air Force and the Air Force said that he failed his mechanical aptitude test. And he'd been an auto mechanic for 10 years. And so, you know, it's one of those things where he went into communications. And from that point on, he had his lifelong career. And so it was just kind of random by chance. And and he ended up traveling around the world and passing on his knowledge around the world. And I think I'd like to do something similar.
7: The fact is that Adam might have to diversify sooner than later. UCC accepts only a quarter of the hundreds of applications they get a year. This speaks to the desire of young people who want to get involved in preserving our natural environment. Adam has a job now, but if AmeriCorps gets axed, some people in Congress want to cut it completely right now. UCC would lose 40 percent of its funding, and America would be passing up a really good deal.
9: AmeriCorps in the state of Utah is teaching young people to read. It's providing medical services for individuals on in the Navajo Nation who have no other access to medical to medical services. It and it's you know essentially working with folks like us who are providing both training and work for public lands. And it's doing it in an incredibly economical way.
1: The director of UCC, Sean Demitz in Logan, reports that core volunteers generate 15.3 million hours of work and save the government an estimated value of $327 million per year. This core network specializes in preparing youth with on-the-job skills, valuable to our future workforce. Many young people are attracted to this kind of work. According to the UCC, there are three main reasons why they gravitate to agencies like AmeriCorps and UCC. One, they are passionate about the environment and want to give back. Two, they want a career in public land management and get their foot in the door. And three, they are driven by a romantic notion of the West, having just read Desert Solitaire or Kerouac. They are ready for an adventure. Whatever the reason, modern-day corps are approaching conservation genuinely. And they are the laborers keeping our public lands in shape.
9: People don't realize that, that there are conservation corps still today and that we're still doing that same kind of work, you know, building trails, building fence, doing habitat restoration, all and it's taking place all over the country. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that even though every state doesn't have a corps, there's a corps operating in nearly every state in the country, if not every state in the country. But I do think that, by and large, a lot of folks are not aware of that fact. I would, we'd, we'd all love to see that change, I think.
1: Like Dave Bastian, John Irish is dedicated to the legacy of the CCC. He is founder of the Coquino Rural Environment Corps in Flagstaff, Arizona, and very involved in today's youth corps. He adds they are integral to keeping many rural communities alive.
6: People come to these remote areas, the small towns, the little villages around the country that are in, these, uh, in and around the national forests and national parks to recreate. When they come, they spend their money in the local restaurants, the, the gas stations, the bait shops, all, all of those places. And what really keeps that industry going are good trails to hike on, scenic parks, uh, you know, well-maintained parks. And so a lot of what these cores do really are rural development, local infrastructure, uh, maintenance, and construction.
11: OK, welcome to
12: Southern Utah.
1: That is Marion Jacqueline, who goes by the nickname Omar. She's an archaeologist and the Heritage Program Manager for the Dixie
7: National Forest. Tour guide Ken Baldridge, one of the organizers of the CCC Legacy Gathering and MC on the bus, guided us through the CCC camps in the St. George area with impeccable detail while sporting a 10-gallon cowboy hat.
2: Let me explain about the camp itself. This is one of the later camps. It actually began in uh, October of 1939. It uh, was one of the last camps to close down. It didn't close down until May of 1942, and the property was turned over to the Army. And uh, one of their first jobs was to build a half-mile road, paved road connecting the camp with the pavement of the roads in Hurricane. This was DG... Uh, 160, and it was was a fifth-core area camp. Most of the boys were from from Ohio, uh, some from Kentucky, some from Indiana, even two from Mississippi. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how they got in here, but um, that was the makeup of the camp.
1: What his beef was with Mississippi, we'll never know. The bus was full of CCC men and their sons and daughters. The men were stationed from six months to two years at any given camp. But it was obvious this short assignment had an impact that's effects lasted generations.
12: My name is Kathleen Duxbury-Yaw and I am from Ridgewood, New Jersey. I am a CCC baby. My father was George Duxbury and he volunteered for four enrollments starting in 1937. He was an um, orphan from uh, New York City. He was from Brooklyn. And he went into the CCC, and it gave him stability, and he was forever grateful. He was the only son of an only son, and by 1937, everyone was dead; they were all deceased. And if you were on, you know, if you were uh, 17, 18, and 1937, at the height of the depression, you were on your own. He was on his own. So it, um, and he would spoke of it as the happiest period in his youth, and it prepared him well. He had a garden all his life, ever since. So <laughs> He was very happy because of it. He had three photo albums and um, several years ago I came across the photo albums and I do have vivid memories of him telling me of the happy times, but of course
7: I never understood it. I was too young or maybe I was just too thick. Duxbury started researching the CCC and discovered the government had hired a very select group of artists to make a pictorial record of what the C's were accomplishing at the camps.
12: This has changed actually my life and that of my husband, uh, Gardner, who retired uh, last year. We are traveling in a 1983 vintage Wanderlodge bus um, by the Bluebird Bus Company. And we're traveling which allows us to stay in state and national parks, which is where the CCC boys are. And we've been told that Ralph Cramden would be very comfortable at the, the wheel of this bus. It's that old. Ralph
7: Cramden Played by actor Jackie Gleason, was a short tempered bus driver on a 1950s sitcom, The Honeymooners. We asked how and if the Wander Lodge was holding up. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's
12: constant problem. You know, it's, it's, um, uh, my husband likens the bus to a house on wheels that experiences multiple earthquakes every day. Something is always shaking loose. I mean, there's always something. We pull behind us a, a jeep, a 1995 jeep that my husband refers to as his little red toolbox.
7: Kathleen and her husband started their investigations in their home state, New Jersey, and are visiting CCC camps across the country where these artists are known to have worked.
12: We're looking for the art, the artists, and the story. Roosevelt did not call them unemployed. He did not call them relief. He referred to them as idle artists, and that is the title of my research, Idle Artists of the Great Depression, a Pictorial Record of the Civilian Conservation Corps. I'm absolutely humbled just by the CCC in general. It was a remarkable program. I mean, just the boys that we're with today, my father, I mean, uh, people say they saved America. I believe they did. I believe America was a country that was blowing and floating away, um, We certainly in the Great Depression. And the artists themselves, um, it's remarkable.
1: Many of the sites of the old camps we visited are now golf courses and housing developments. The physical record has long been washed away, and only stories and memories are left. What Joan Sharp, the president of the Civilian Conservation Corps legacy, is dedicated to preserving, in order to pass the conservation torch on to younger generations.
11: They and their heritage now depend on us, because they believe that the CCC story changed their life and of course as an organization, the Civilian Conservation Corps Legacy, it's our job to make sure that the history of the CCC isn't forgotten. And part of that is to reach out to Corps like the Utah Conservation Corps to make sure that uh, people know about it. You know there's not a lot of people that understand that there is a modern Corps system out there. Uh, I sit at my desk every day and somebody will call and say they need another Corps. You know, if you would read the paper, (laughs) if you would pay attention to what's being said in the news and things, you would know that there is a lot of really good kids out there working in conservation, and they are, it's already here. The question is, how do we tell that story to the American public? How do we tell it to our legislators? How do we let America know that it's already happening?
1: Dave Bastion agrees. Most of the work they do remains under the radar. They are often pulling 60-hour weeks carrying heavy equipment deep into wilderness study areas, teaching and training young people hard skills, and instilling a sense of obligation to conservation and preservation of America's pristine wilderness.
9: We take young folks from all over the country and we put them to work on public lands, what I describe as the most beautiful public lands in America. And we work for every, nearly every national park in the state. We work for all the federal agencies, Forest Service, BLM, National Park Service. We work for municipalities such as Salt Lake City, Salt Lake County. Uh, we, yeah, we cover, and then we actually also get a little bit into Idaho, Wyoming, and Arizona a bit.
7: Bastion's colleague, Nicole Ashton, is a field boss for the UCC. She symbolizes the essence of the difference between the old CCC and the modern day Corps.
13: I've always kind of been involved in, in man's work, learning a lot of new skills and, and being able to dive in right in there with the, with the guys, you know, learn how to run a chainsaw and, and then helped with the training this fall um, with the chainsaw and, and stuff. And, and It's always really fun to surprise the guys with what we're capable of doing. Just the other week we had some 80-pound pa- bags of cement that we needed to move down the hill. and. Uh, one of the crew leaders had said to me, well, "Well we'll get somebody to help you with those bags." And when he came back, I was you know carrying them over my shoulder like down the hill and he was like, "I'm sorry that I said that we would get help for you. Obviously, you didn't need it." And I was just like, "Yeah, and it's empowering for me to you know have these different doors open to me or to girls to see, you know, you can do this.
9: One of the biggest things I get out of uh, being in this position with the Utah Conservation Corps is seeing those aha moments in my Corps members when they really develop not just the ability to conduct a new skill, but the confidence in themselves that's developed by uh, obtaining those new skills. So it's the hardest, but also the most rewarding.
1: That was Adam Trenzo, a UCC field boss in Moab. It is this sense of pride in the old and the young that has cultivated guardians of America's lands across the 20th and 21st centuries. It is a lifestyle that isn't for the weary.
8: My name, Richard B. Chrysinger. My birthday, 2 July, 1922. One of the main things that taught me was uh, discipline and how to become a leader. I'll be 90 in my next birthday. I served in three base camps, one spike camp, and one district headquarters. First base camp was Camp Rusk, Company 3652, Rusk County, Wisconsin. I spent six months there in the heart of winter. Cold, cold, cold being a young boy of 14.
1: Richard's grandmother forged papers in order for him to enroll in the CCC at the age of 15, pretending he was 18. The CCC boys made $30 a month and 25 of that was automatically sent home to their families. Estranged from his father and on the move, the CCC was a refuge from train hopping and homelessness for Richard that started when he was only 14.
8: My parents were divorced and I had problems with my mother, and during the divorce proceedings, my father used the wrong psychology on me. So I was a high school dropout in my freshman year. I rode the rods across the United States. I was a young hobo at the age of 14. Well, Mike, the
10: 5%...
7: Richard's service in the CCC Corps changed his track, and he went on to serve the country in three major wars, World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. The CCC gave young men hope and discipline, transforming a trail-hopping hobo into a decorous soldier.
14: Bunch of country and city kids with no work, families near starving are going to get paid $30 a month and send 25 home to their families. They're going to join this corps and fix up forests and mountains and roads and dams and all sorts of things. And yes, the government is paying for that. You mean it's like the army, shouted Zeke. Well, the war fellows are handling it with rules and disciplines, but it's called the The Civilian Conservation Corps, shouted another voice. That was
7: Judith Edwards, actress and author of Invasion on the Mountain The Adventures of Will Ryan and the Civilian Conservation Corps, the first in a three part series. The story is about a boy who gets involved with the CCC and takes place on Scutney Mountain. And near the mountain is a small town where Judy currently lives, and also home to one of the first CCC camps in the United States. The CCC activity on the mountain helps the young boy and gives him purpose during a time where jobs were scarce and people were depressed. And in reality, the CCC public relief program gave purpose to tens of thousands of young men. It was a divisive decision by Roosevelt to pour taxpayers' money into unskilled manual labor jobs, boosting the economy.
14: I think that's one of the reasons I've gotten so involved with the Civilian Conservation Corps and why I'm in Utah at the moment. Um, My family were very Republican. I am very Democrat. (laughs) And they were ranchers in Colorado. And so when the WPA gave all these people money, my family, who when the ranch didn't work, they'd go and work in the steel mills, got very upset and became Republicans. They had been Democrats. And they moved to California. So growing up, the worst word In the world was Roosevelt, said that way. It's a little hard for me to say Roosevelt, which is the way you're supposed to say it. So I don't think we could ever repeat the CCC in the first place. Can you see a president getting in there on getting elected March 4th, and then by March 31, the Civilian Conservation Corps existed because he'd gotten the Congress involved. He'd suggested the idea, the Congress got involved, the cabinet approved, the Congress got involved, the Congress voted for it, the vote was. The uh, bill was passed, and it started. America is facing the
1: same decisions today. Do we cut AmeriCorps in tough times, or do we pull a Roosevelt? Certainly the old boys of the CCC are a living legacy of the benefits of building up our youth and of putting our energies into conservation and the mentality of conservation. The fruits of their labor, their blood, sweat, and tears are the roads we all travel. This May, a partnership between the Utah Conservation Corps, U.S. Forest Service, the Wasatch Water Legacy, and Salt Lake City Department of Public Services were awarded $95,000 in funding to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation to increase youth participation in UCC's Bilingual Youth Corps program, The funding will establish a new program in Salt Lake City. Emmy Malotis is Director of Salt Lake City Parks and Public Lands.
5: So essentially, um, Salt Lake City, in partnership with our Wasatch Front Regional Partners and the Utah Conservation Corps, um, applied for a grant to initiate a bilingual youth corps here in Salt Lake City area. We are really excited because we um, were able to partner funds from our open space program to kick this off.
15: The beginning of this bilingual youth corps down in Salt Lake City is really an initiation of getting youth involved in conservation efforts, specifically in the urban wildland interface which is really important to kind of ongoing stewardship efforts of our bigger public lands that are farther off from the city. This will be an opportunity for kids to connect with nature and conservation efforts in their own hometown. Leslie Chan is the Open Space Lands Program Manager of Salt Lake City. These kids will be working alongside adult Utah Conservation Corps members and my staff to continue on with these projects. Um, We're going to be doing trail improvements and habitat restoration in um, several areas including Wasatch Hollow Open Space and
5: Parley's Historic Nature
15: Park along with the Jordan River.
5: I think the idea is, is yes you can be a park ranger you know out in an amazing wilderness somewhere but you can also be engaged in these things here in Salt Lake City.
1: The Utah Conservation Corps, a legacy of the CCC, was established under the umbrella of AmeriCorps, whose mission is to create employment and preserve lands. Emily and Leslie explain how the UCC model benefits our community.
5: The Corps has provided Americans some amazing services over the generations. during different periods of our history, we have uh, amazing architectural features in our national parks as a result of, you know, the services and the hard work that um, that was provided also while providing employment opportunities. And so similarly, um, Salt Lake City is excited about this opportunity for partnership because we see that youth are underemployed. We understand that Having a strong, robust economy helps a community thrive and improves everybody's quality of life, which is really what we want for our citizens. And so when we preserve parks, when we preserve open space, and when we maintain them properly, it's just contributing to that holistic benefit that we all come to reside in this area for. Furthermore, I think the mission of Utah Conservation Corps of actually doing the work and providing the skills is something that we want in house because you know not only do we want to make sure that staff that are coming to Leslie maybe to work in her program in the future understand the challenges because you know as our communities grow it's our open spaces our developed parks and natural lands that receive a lot of pressure because we all want to be there and so land management is a really important skill set that we need our youth to be able to be trained in so that as future pressures increase, um, we're able to meet the public's needs.
15: The other great thing about the Utah Conservation Corps is that they really bring a regional and kind of a, a statewide perspective to this work, where, whereas these youth will get an experience in the city. Being connected to the Utah Conservation Corps kind of gives this larger perspective, which is something that we definitely want um, to have taught to the youth as well or have them feel that connection to the, to the bigger state perspective.
1: The grant will fund four separate five-week sessions in Salt Lake City starting this summer. Youth members are expected to complete 50 miles of urban open space trail maintenance and habitat restoration on 135 acres of public land.
5: I would encourage that if you see the youth out in the field working in any of our parks, they'll be in uniform so they'll be very recognizable. Um, I'd encourage you to thank them and to give them support. We did have some folks last summer Acknowledged the Utah Conservation Corps' efforts in some of our parks, and I think one day somebody brought them some ice cream shakes, which was really sweet because they, they are on the front lines of implementing projects for us, which oftentimes have inherent challenges or controversies because we have many user groups, and sometimes uses are mutually exclusive, and there are some tensions that arise. And I think for as much as we work with the public to get to a resolution and, and have an implemented or adopted management plan supported by the mayor and council, when we have these young people uh, implementing the visions that the city stands behind, it's important to not take out one's perspective or uh, disappointment on somebody who's really providing public service. Um, so I'd encourage supporting the, the folks that you see out there working in the field.
1: Youth interested in participating in the Utah Conservation Corps program can sign up at usu.edu forward slash UCC or call 435-797-0964. The application deadline for the first session is June 4th. Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn and Susie Montgomery. Thank you for listening.